chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it of it tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the inequity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Israel that the inequity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. Eli said, What is it he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. Thank you, Kim. You can imagine what that breakfast would have looked like the next day when Eli is saying to Samuel, Tell me what God said. And Samuel says, What does expiated mean? Um, Our second scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 1. And we are going to be reading a little bit from Mark. Uh, but not this morning. Mark is, a, is, the, is, the, uh, is the scripture for this year. Uh, but right now we're going to read from John. So this is John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Hear now the word of our Lord. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom the Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, 
He said of him, Now here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than these. He said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the word of God for the people of God. There's a quote from Rumi, a 13th century Persian Sunni Muslim poet. He said, if you are here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage. Maybe you can think about that a little bit. As I, I want to talk to you this morning a little bit, so my, I can't help but talk about my daughter Joey when I'm thinking about everything that I'm doing in my life right now, and it seems like my whole mind fits around her. She uh, is at that stage they call the terrible twos. Does anybody, anybody know what that looks like? Yeah, and so, uh, so I've been reading this book. I was talking to Paul the other day, and I've been reading this book called uh, Raising Human Beings by a guy named Dr. Ross Green. who's a New York Times bestseller. And I love the way that he thinks, and I think that a lot of things that he said is very compatible with some of the stuff that we're doing, especially our peacemaking, peace and reconciliation class that we've been doing. And uh, so he says not to try to help Joey understand what's expected of her but rather understand that the difficulty that she's going through is the result of what he calls incompatibility. There's an incompatibility between her expectations and understandings of the world and my expectations and understandings of the world. There's an incompatibility between what she wants and what she desires and what she needs and the way that the world is. And the way that we are supposed to respond to that, he says, is not by trying to help her conform to the expectations but by helping us understand what her life is like through empathy, then we can be collaborators together to help the world change, to help her change, to help our expectations change so that we together grow as she grows. Not so that I force her to be something that she's not, but that she discovers herself through our collaboration. Incompatibility and collaboration. In my last sermon on Christmas Eve, those of you who were here, I challenged us as a congregation to think about the birth of Christ as the birth of a new kind of people. I'll get to the collaboration and incompatibility in just a moment. But I meditated then on Isaac Watts' hymn, Joy to the World, and I hope that you were able to understand what I was doing because I was challenging us to have our imagination reshaped by the language of the hymn, that The coming of Christ was the awakening of a people who were fully alive to what brings joy to creation. The beloved creation around us. So I was borrowing from the language of Dr. King when I used the phrase ecological beloved community. Since tomorrow is the day that the nation is going to celebrate Dr. King, I thought it was appropriate for us to spend some time today wrestling as a faith community with what he was trying to teach us. Today, I want to start a session with you of wrestling together in hopes that we can discover together God's dream for the world, what Dr. King called the beloved community. 
and what that means for us as a congregation. So I'm just starting this conversation with you. I want us to wrestle together about what the beloved community is because I believe, as Dr. King did, that this is a language to help us discover the dream of God. So the phrase beloved community was a language that Dr. King used to articulate his understanding of God's dream for the world. Drawn upon the work of the philosopher and theologian at the turn of the 20th century, his name was Josiah Royce, he believed that the beloved community was a way of talking about what the gospels meant by the reign of God, the reign of heaven. So understand, beloved community, reign of God, reign of heaven, kingdom of God, they're the same. They're meant to be the same. The beloved community, see, is this global vision Dr. King called us to imagine where the people of God are able to work together to share the wealth of the earth. It's about our ability to respond to conflicts nonviolently, collaboratively. It's about us becoming mutual caretakers of ourselves, of each other, and the world that we live in. It's about the beauty of us all discovering the ways that our gifts and our skills as individuals fit the wider hunger and need of the world around us. In short, the beloved community is the vision of the love of God come to life among us. The word of God made flesh. That's what I said to you on Christmas. The beloved community is the vision of the love of God come to life among us. The word made flesh. So this vision for a beloved community is what I want to talk about today. It's a theological vision, obviously, but it's also a vision of what we can become as a community. So it's not some kind of notion about God that's spiritual that has no implications for us as a community at all. In fact, it's spiritual because it has everything to do with the way that we live as a community. I tried to make clear on Christmas that it's also an ecological vision. It's, it is so because it sees an ecosystem at peace where humans live with a deep reverence for our place within the entire web of life, a deep reverence for ourselves, our role as caretakers of creation. So I'm trying to help us see the beloved community is really a larger part of the vision of God for the rest of creation. Are you following me here? Today I want to talk about the relationship between the beloved community and our vocation. Vocation is the word for this morning, calling. You hear the voice of God calling to, to Samuel. Samuel says, here I am. The calling. Jesus coming to Nathaniel. Calling. Vocation. So the way I see it, the beloved community is not just a vision for a just world. It's also a vision for fully realized human beings. It's for us to have a full realization of ourself. It's both a vision for the calling of creation and our individual callings. Ultimately, the question of your calling is about gaining a deep reverence for the way that the beloved community, the beloved creation, is yearning from inside you. Deep within you, there's something about creation that wants to come alive, you see. So in our text this morning, we read about Nathaniel. And I think that the encounter between Nathaniel and Jesus is interesting. It's kind of one of the Gospel of John's kind of, you know, you read it and you think, what in the world just happened? We read Nathaniel's response to Philip. Philip says, Jesus is coming from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? So we know right away Nathaniel is a skeptic. But the irony is that Jesus... Um, that Jesus' response to Nathaniel caused him to immediately become a quick believer. And we have no idea what's going on in Nathaniel's head. He hears Jesus say to him that in him there is no deceit. And immediately Nathaniel says, Ah, how is it that you know me? 
Jesus speaks to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel has a Jesus moment where he realizes that in Jesus, he knows himself. Jesus says one word, and all of a sudden, Nathaniel says, how is it that you know me? The Gospel of John has all kinds of these. One of them, for instance, you might remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Jesus is coming to her talking about if she had asked the right way, he would have given her the well of life, you know, the water, living water. But then Jesus says to her something about her love life and immediately she runs away and starts telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. So there's something about the way that Jesus speaks in John that allows people to think that Jesus has a glimpse, that Jesus can see into their souls. So reading these stories... I can't help but think about what Parker Palmer called the discovery of our deep identity. How many times is that going to go off? So, reading these stories, I can't help but, under, I can't help but imagine that this, what's happening here is what Parker Palmer called the discovery of our deep identity. Our deepest calling. Parker Palmer says that it's our deepest calling is really to grow into our own selfhood. You can imagine me thinking about this as I'm looking at Joey, trying to help figure out how to collaborate with her to discover her deepest self. Who is she? To be authentic as she is. When Jesus spoke to Nathaniel, see, he wasn't just speaking like the other religious authorities who were looking to turn him into someone he's not. Someone different, someone better, maybe someone just beyond his reach. Jesus wasn't speaking as some external voice to Nathaniel. Rather, Jesus connected with a deep voice that was already inside him, a voice that was calling him to realize who he had been born to be, as Parker Palmer puts it, to fulfill the original selfhood he had been given at birth, to accept the treasure of the true self he already possessed. See, that's what happened. That's what I think John is trying to help us see. And when Jesus spoke to Nathaniel about being a person where there was no deceit in him, Nathaniel realized Jesus knew him deeply. Nathaniel discovered his deep identity. Palmer says that we grow in, when we grow into our authentic selves, we not only find the joy that every human being seeks, but we find our path of authentic service in the world. We not only find the joy that we're seeking, but we find the way that the we fit with the wider world's needs. See, the joy we were created for is not the joy of becoming what we think the world wants us to be. It's by knowing who we are here on earth is a gift that God has offered us for the sake of the rest of creation. It's by finding out that we are the existence of the gift that God has offered creation. Each one of you is a gift that you have been born that God is offering to the rest of creation. This deep discovery of your identity is the realization of what that gift looks like when it's lived out. To make his point, Parker Palmer shares of this Hasidic tale about a rabbi. And I'm probably going to get his name wrong. Rabbi Zusia. So this tale goes like this. Rabbi Zusia, when he was an old man, he said, In the coming world, they will not ask me, Why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zeusia? In other words, the beloved community is not made up of people who are all striving to be like their favorite heroes, not even if those heroes are the founders of their religious traditions. 
Rather, the beloved community is not a vision of people conforming themselves to some abstract moral code either. It's a vision about us learning to finally be ourselves, discovering our true deep identity, not why were you not Jesus or Gandhi or Dr. King, but why were you not Michael or why were you not Amy or why were you not Paul or why were you not Dave? It's why were you not who I created you to be? Some of you have heard me use this quote multiple times, and I used it this week, and someone said, you should use this this Sunday. And it really helped me kind of think through, yeah, I think that is what God wants us to say this morning. It's a quote from Frederick Buechner. It defines the vocation as this, vocation, calling, is the place where your deepest gladness meets the world's deepest need. The power, I think, of Buechner's quote is that it undoes something powerful in our psyche. I think it draws us closer to the realization of the vision of God's beloved community. See, I think this relationship between the self and the beloved community is hard to get at because we live in a deeply selfish society. We have been taught to believe that self-care is opposed to our ability to be in relationship of mutual care with others. Of course, there's this false neoliberal vision some of you might have heard that it's always been a selfish undercurrent in the debate between the relationship between the self and society. It teaches that if we care only for ourselves, then we move to a sort of enlightened self-interest where we can focus only on our assumed needs and ignore the needs of the wider community around us. And if all of us do this, then everything would work. But I think Dr. King's vision and Bickner's language about vocation challenge us to see something different, the inversion of that which is actually this. There's a place that exists where we can give ourselves to the world, not ignoring the world's needs, and yet discover our own deepest selves. What we give up, what, what, what will give us this deep and abiding joy in us is discover what we were created for, that we were gifts that God has given to the creation. So I believe deep in my soul that the vision of the beloved community is what we're created for. And that God has placed a deep longing embedded in the core of who we are as a part of creation to be that place of mutual care. I believe our deepest joy will be found only when we really give ourselves to be part of the needs of the world around us. I believe that is what Parker Palmer is referring to when he talks about discovering our deep identity. This, I believe, is what Nathaniel saw in Jesus. That Jesus wasn't asking him to put on a mask to be somebody he wasn't. That Jesus wasn't asking him to sacrifice his self on the altar of a world that had no hope. But that Jesus, in Jesus, Nathaniel discovered who he really was. His true self. That he was made up of the same stuff of the world around him. The world that was yearning for redemption was deep in him too. Ultimately, the question of your calling then... It's for us to gain a deep reverence for the way that the beloved community, that creation, is in us yearning to come alive. See, that is, I think, what Buchner's point is, that discovering what gives you deep joy and addressing the deep hunger of the world are not only not incompatible. Your deepest joy and the world's deepest needs are not incompatible, but they're one and the same thing. They're co-requisites. See, my prayer is that we as a congregation have a Jesus moment like Nathaniel did. That we hear Jesus speak to us in ways that uncover our deep identities. 
that like Nathaniel, we can hear the voice of God calling us, calling to us. And we can reply, Jesus, how is it that you knew who I really was? My prayer is that as a congregation, we can discover what gives us deep joy and find ourselves at the place where our deepest needs and the deepest needs of the world are being met. I pray that we realize a dream of God for the beloved community and not just the human community, but all of us, all of creation, everything that we participate in works together for joy. I pray that you can see your deepest joy is not incompatible with participating in the building of a beloved community. Just like I don't think that Joey's deepest desires are incompatible with our need as a family. That I have to coerce her into being something different. I pray that we see that our deepest joy is not incompatible with our participation in the building of beloved community, but instead that the deep joy of our belovedness and the beloved community are the same.